ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Mandy Nolan has always stood out. Stood out literally because she's six foot with a crown of platinum blonde hair. But she also stands out for who she is. Mandy was raised in Wandai, a little country town in Queensland. This was Joe Bjorka-Peterson heartland, but Mandy's mum sobbed with joy when Gough Whitlam was elected. Mandy moved to the city as a teenager and became a feminist stand-up comedian, taking on rooms full of drunken punters. She then made her home in the northern rivers of New South Wales and had five kids with three different dads, and somehow they all managed to have Christmas together. Mandy's always been involved in her community, fundraising, teaching comedy and protesting. And then in her mid-50s, she decided to take that further. Mandy stood as the Greens candidate for the federal seat of Richmond in the 2022 elections. She didn't win, but she may have found a new calling. Hi, Mandy. Oh, hello, Sarah. Tell me about Wandai. What kind of town was it when you were growing up there? It means wild dog, which I I kind of love that evocative feeling because the dingo is kind of the totem animal there. I think it's it's the, the land of the Waka Waka people. It was a kind of small little country town that had, it had an amazing department store called Boyson's, which was run by Mick and Beryl, who had never married, but had inherited the shop, I think, from their parents. And as they aged, they got shorter and shorter. And all you actually saw was a tuft of hair <laughs> over the counter. Now, Boyson's had some of the, they had stuff in the 50s. They still had pound markings on the shoes. When that got out to the kind of vintage collecting set, there was like people almost dropping in in helicopters to raid uh, this incredible store. But it was that kind of sense of, you know, there's a lot of things that were unchanged. So it was, it was a beautiful, idyllic country town, very cut off from, I guess, the rest of the world. But very conflicted in its own personal politics. If you, It's a very different story to tell as an Aboriginal person growing up there to what it would have been as a white person, a non-Aboriginal person growing up there. So I think I think that's incredibly uh, significant. Most of the kids, like I went to school with, half the kids I went to school with were Aboriginal. I didn't realise till I went to university, you know, we were doing anthropology and, and talking about First Nation or Aboriginal culture almost as an abstract thing. And I realised everyone in my class didn't know an Aboriginal person. It was it was an idea. And that was that particular type of Australia. So we were a community where football brought us together on the weekends, but still very driven driven apart through racial antagonisms in that town. Wandai also has a famous son in Chad Morgan, the Sheik of Scrubby oh, yes, Creek. It does. My dad had that album. He used to come home when he was drunk and he'd put it on. It was a 78 and he would howl along to that. It was one of the good things when he did die was that that record never got put on again, <laughs> uh, which I have to admit I have, you know, I love, I love the idea of Chad Morgan now, probably more now than I did then. What do you know about you, how your mum and dad got together? What's the story that you were told growing up, Mandy? Well, you know, there's a difference things, Sarah, between what you're told growing up and what you force your parents to tell you. So I knew that my mother, got, they'd gotten married. Mum was 19. My dad would have been probably 25. Um, Mum got married in a caftan. Lucky it was like 1967 when the caftan was in because she was pregnant. It was a classic shotgun wedding. But that being the case, I actually pushed for when I was conceived and apparently it was after a football grand final. Um, my dad had been the captain of the football team. They'd won and it was in the back seat of mum's dad's car. Obviously, they weren't in the front seat. They'd borrowed the car <laughs> just to get that clear. So I went, oh my God, I was like the final touchdown. That That's was more me. detail than most of us get about our origin story, I well, reckon, Mandy. It is. And I push for more detail all the time. Being Having a naturally comedic mind, I'm like going, well, well how? Where were you? What was the circumstance? Like, I knew it was going to be good. Well, beyond the Chad Morgan LP, what other memories do you have of your dad? I guess the memories of my dad are very cleaved in two um, because my dad was killed in a car accident when I was six years old. I grew up in a very violent household because my dad was a drinking alcoholic. He died. At, actually, it was 49 years 
the other day, the um, anniversary of his death, he was 30 years old when he, when he died. And dad was this incredibly warm, um, I'm probably more like my dad than I am like anyone else in the family. You know, he, he had a, he was funny. He was, he was warm. I remember um, some really kind of cute little things of, of him. One, one, I think one of the things I remember in between the violence, when we were locked out of the house, when, when, uh, you know, he would go missing for days at a time. And when he came back, mum had locked me in a room with herself and it, it would just be on. He would drink himself almost sober. It was like a psychosis, you know. He would bang the door down. He would hurt her. He would break things. He would tip food on so that we'd end up with all the clothes thrown out of the house, sleeping in the bush. And the next day he'd wake up with no memory of that and no sense of um, what had happened but this incredible shame and remorse. And... And that's what you would live between this landscape of it was the Jekyll and Hyde. It was it was the monster and and this really loving, traumatized man. That it's almost like there was no other option for him. He would end up in jail, or he would die because then there was no treatment. There was there was no one to talk to to actually repatriate the terrible things that had happened to you. But one of the I have nice memories in here as well, Sarah. I don't want to <laughs> make it too harsh. You know, my dad had a really great sense of humor and. We always had people that were the people that were discarded or unwanted. They always they would always end up at our house. There'd be always an old man with one eye sleeping in a bed, or he would bring home um, broken birds and from the side of the road, and he'd p- patch them up. So we'd always have a pigeon with one wing, which <laughs> and and people that were a bit like that too, because he had. It was really hard to get that story of this incredibly compassionate man who could also be violent and terrifying. And sometimes in the conversations around domestic violence, we don't marry those two together. And that's often what makes it very complex for people living in violence to leave is because they don't just know the story of the monster. They know the story of the person who's who underneath that is is good and kind. There was a huge flood, the 1974 floods. My dad probably died um, a couple of months afterwards. And before he before he was killed in a car accident, he'd been sober for a year. And I can remember those years as a child. The drinking years were dark and terrifying and the sober years were full of hope. And when, it, when the floods were happening, I remember my father turning up to my school to drive me home and, you know, because the bridges were being, you know, from where we lived were being covered in water. And it was this, it was this little moment of being rescued by a man who needed rescuing himself. And it was kind of, you know, and that, that was it. Like I only have a couple of a couple of moments. Oh, my God, and when I got given a pony. You got that, given a pony? I know, Sarah. You get some pretty good presents, <laughs> particularly when you live with a father uh, with no sense of reality who would come. He'd come home with a boat. He'd come home with new cars all the time because he kept crashing them and rolling them. And it was in the time when nobody did, could do credit checks, so he was pretty good at accessing finance. He could never pay back. So on this one particular Christmas morning, I wake up and there's a beautiful piebald brown and white pony tied to the fence. And the pony later on tried to kill me, but it was the moment (laughs) of actually that pony. It was so beautiful. It was my little girl dream. So I I had the hardest, most frightening, scariest stuff. And I was a very dark and strange child obsessed with death. Um... I also got these glimpses that something else was possible and that maybe there could be better things for me. After after your dad died, Mandy, what did your mum do? How was she looking after the family, you and your little brother? Mum was a hairdresser. So, look, she was 26 years old and it, it changed mum's life too because she couldn't have left that domestic violence situation. Well, if she did, there was nowhere to go. So she stayed in it. So it liberated her even though she was, you know, in a state of grief because she'd lost, you know, she loved my father, but it was... It gave her a chance to start again. Yeah, and and in a way she became the town that had kind of, within the violence, I guess, the town that had... The town knows what's happening and people didn't really intervene. But when, when she became a widow, she got a lot of support and she got a lot of help from the community and they were really fantastic. I mean... I don't, I don't, we didn't talk about domestic violence then. It was, we also had, 
just around, like I remember my dad, that day it happened as a child and it seems really macabre, but I remember it playing out. I watched it through these pink neck curtains, very 1970s curtains, as I watched the police car pull up. I watched my aunt come out of the car and and start crying. I heard my mother scream. There's that thing that happens as these little figures played out because you, when the police turn up at your house in that kind of circumstance, you know what it is. And that day mum and um, my dad had, had a fight and the last thing my mother ever said to him, I was never allowed to have a fight and walk out of the house because of it. She said, if there's such a thing as a God, how can he let someone like you live? And then he never came back. <sighs> and so she... She lived with that, that sense of, of, of guilt. But I remember as a child going to her at that moment and grabbing her hand and, and I, I remember saying to her, well, she remembers actually, she told me, so it's not really my memory but her memory of me saying, at least now we'll have peace. Did you have to sort of shoulder a lot of just domestic responsibility at home if you, your mum's working as a hairdresser, oh, keeping totally. things afloat? Yeah, because my little brother was six months old when my father was killed and mum, like she was 26 years old, she had to step up, she had to work a bit more and I I found myself having to do, you know, I would do the washing, I would do the cleaning on Saturday mornings. You were a sporty kid and you have this advantage of your height and were a basketball player, but as you mentioned, there wasn't much money in your family. When you were selected to, to play basketball for the state. How did you afford the trip over to to WA as a teenager? Well, I was very lucky, Sarah, that the community rallied together and a lot of of the, um, because mum was very involved in the Catholic church, so a lot of it was the Catholic ladies and mum being, I was the child of a widow um, so there was a sense that the town always had, and it was, it's a really beautiful value to care for, for people who are you know, more disadvantaged. And so they ran lamington drives, basically, which is weird because I'm gluten intolerant now, but they sold a lot of gluten to, to get me on that plane. I think I'd been I'd, had been training up north, so they had to raise money for me to go train in North Queensland and then eventually go to Perth. And it was amazing actually being able to get there because of the kindness of the community. They gave me spending money as well. And I came back with all the spending money because it I didn't, I didn't know I was supposed to spend it. Like, I wouldn't have known how to spend it. I didn't know how to spend it. Over there in Perth, your basketball team were all meant to go and see the movie Flashdance. What did you want to do instead, Mandy? Sarah, this is one of my defining moments. Um, this is when the team was like the, one of the, it's like one of the team assistants. I think it was one of the mums of the girls. And she, one day we had our one day off and she goes, okay, girls, today we're having a day off. Everyone, we're all going to see Flashdance. And I go, well, I don't want to see Flashdance. Can I go to the, you know, can I go to a museum? Can I go to an art gallery? Can we go? Can I do something? I want to do some sightseeing in Perth. Like this was a big opportunity. And <laughs> she just goes, no, everyone's going to see Flashdance. I said, well, I don't want to see it. She goes, you are a weird, freaky girl, Mandy Nolan. You are a weird, freaky girl. <laughs> Um, because I didn't want to see Flashdance. And I just was, like, so upset. So I was forced to see Flashdance. And all through Flashdance, every time Jennifer Beale's doing that movement, I'm just sitting there crying going, I'm a weird, freaky girl. <laughs> Did you feel already that you were a weird, freaky girl? Did you feel different? I already felt like that. And that just confirmed it. You know, now I know I'm a weird, freaky girl and I love it. Like, I am here to celebrate the weird, freaky girl in all of us. But... <laughs> When you're 15 years old and you're on the other side of the country, the last thing you want to do is to be ostracised from the rest of the people you're with by being reminded that you're not the same. But I think having that feeling of, and I think a lot of people have it, of that that deep shame that sits in you about being different and about speaking out and showing who you are. And when you do that and you get shut down and you get humiliated, it makes you never want to do that again because it's risky. How strongly do you remember the emotion of being a teenager? You know, those intense highs and lows, the first loves, the first heartbreaks, all of that 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 can make adolescence such a kind of intense time. Oh, I remember it like it was yesterday. Sometimes I think as a woman of 55, I'm more like that girl now, now than I ever was because it's almost like you kind of do this whole full life of servicing all these ideas and what you should be in the world and you come back to this kind of raw, open authenticity 
of of who you were. So I t- I really remember. I remember um, falling in love, <laughs> which was so funny. I remember falling in love for the first time. One day I went to year ten, and then you had to if you wanted to go to eleven and twelve. Uh, certainly not expected. And a bit of an overreach for a lot of us. It was like you got the bus to Kingaroy and you did 11 and 12. So it was like turning up at a new school 20 minutes away. Very different kind of atmosphere when you got there. And, you know, I was the new girl at school basically and ended up... I remember that the boy that liked me was kind of like the cool boy at school. And and I'd never been liked by anyone before. And I think I only liked him because he liked me. But then eventually I just, you know, you kind of fall in love and we went, you know, we probably had a a very intense nine-month passionate first love relationship. And I remember him telling me, what I remember the most is when he told me he didn't love me anymore and he was crying and he had like snot coming out of his nose because he felt so bad about it. And I remember just looking at him going, oh, oh well, he, he mustn't be well. Because I, I, I kind of comforted him for not loving me because then I, I had no concept that it was possible not to be loved. In growing up in, you know, with a lot of domestic violence and, and you know, all the things that had happened to me, what I'd grown up with, I'd grown up entirely loved by the people around me. So I had no concept that someone could stop loving you. So I do remember about a week later, I realised that he didn't love me. And, oh, my God, the pain. It took like... A, it was like one week of pain before I got over it. But that I, I remember that because that was the epiphany was, oh, this this is different. This is a different type of love, this kind of love that you turn on and that you turn off. And it was quite complex because what I realised, I realised that in my own parenting because I had, you know, ended up with five kids, what I was most concerned about was trying to give them the language and the understanding of how to navigate this world where you can love someone and they may not love you back or you may stop loving someone and and how to navigate that. That's the hardest stuff of all. I mean, they talk about the birds and the bees. Talking about sex is nothing. Talking about the emotional landscape of how to be a decent human being, that's that's tricky. Back when you were when you were a teenager in Wandai, how were you imagining your future? What kind of shape did you think it might have? I think when I imagined my future, it was never there. My future was me leaving. That was the why I used to get up. I used to get up at four thirty every morning, and I would study so hard. I was obsessed. But if I didn't get a hundred percent on my exams, it wasn't good enough to me. Like I had to. I saw that as my ticket out. So I. I saw myself as a writer or I saw myself as uh, an actor or I saw myself as a journalist. I ended up um, going to uni and studying journalism for a couple of years. But I, I, I was so in love with learning as well. Like I got up because I love reading. Like I wanted, I wasn't, you know, a completely obsessive reader. I was obsessed with knowing how things worked and really creative. I loved painting. I loved making things with my hands. I loved writing stories. And, you know, I, I, I thought there had to be more than that. I wasn't interested sometimes in the same things always as my peers. I love sport. Like I was really good at sport too and that kind of helped make me not quite so freaky and weird. When you came to, to Brisbane to go to university, you also decided to try stand-up comedy what was that about? I, I did it by accident. So look, my whole career, I'm always amazed now that, like I've been doing stand-up for 37 years and what I'm amazed at, or 38 years, is that so many people do it on purpose. Like I went, wow, you actually want to do this. So, What do you mean? How do you do it by accident? Well, I did it just because we were doing a show. It was I was at um, University of Queensland. I think we were doing, it I re, It really was like a little kind of gathering of doing feminist theatre. We had to fill a five-minute spot in the show. And I went, well, I'll just tell the story. Oh, my God, it's so embarrassing. And, of course, it's the classic embarrassing feminist coming out piece of my first period. Like, everyone wants to know about that. So that was the piece I did. I almost know it off by heart still. And I rattled this piece off. And, oh, my God, everyone thought it was amazing and so funny. It was terrible. But I got booked. Like people, someone, people started booking me. I got paid from the minute I stood up and started doing stuff. And and I didn't know what I was doing. So I wasn't doing stand-up the way you do stand-up. I would write a funny monologue and then I would learn it and then I would just blurt it out. I had no concept of what I was doing. There were so few women doing that that whenever someone 
wanted a woman. They went, there's this weird woman that talks about a first period. She'll be right. (laughs) And so I just started getting booked. And so I started working as a stand-up and I was terrible. Like, really, I look back. I mean, maybe I was kind of cute and adorable in a kind of way an 18-year-old is when they think they know everything about the world. But I'm embarrassed to look back. How brutal could those early audiences be? Oh, yeah, beyond brutal. Like I had some, it's funny because I've taught over 2,000 people comedy now and it's so funny when I sit backstage with people who are like failing, you know, failing you and if the audience isn't adoring them, they come back and they go, oh, it's really hard out there, it was so hard. And you're going, you're not bleeding. Uh, people Why? didn't what try would, and what would happen? chase you in the car park. Oh, my God, people would go nuts. Like I've been hit in the head with a beer can. I've had, I've walked out once. They were yelling out some fairly horrendous stuff. One guy pulled his pants down, um, showed me his penis in the front row. Someone cracked a beer can on his head. He collapsed. I just kept doing another 10 minutes because I got paid 30 bucks that night. Literally had to be escorted out to the car. That was at a university refectory gig. They were like all going on to be doctors and lawyers, those people. That, that, that's the problem with, this, with our so society. Why did you keep doing it? Oh, because I can't say no, Sarah. It's the reason I'm here today. Um, no. Was there an adrenaline in surviving something like that? Was that part of it? Was there a thrill like, to you know coming what? I out? I still don't know why I did it. Like I, I would come out of that and I had this, because I'd come from, I think part of my background really played into it. I'd come from adversity and if I could survive something that would destroy a normal person, that was success. So I would walk out of that and I'd go, oh, I think that went all right. <laughs> I literally could forget about it. One thing I don't do is, like, I walk out of that. Like, I've, I've driven home from gigs where I've had people chase me and yell, say horrible things to me. This is a long time ago. I've cried in the car all the way home, like, just sobbed. And I, it's so cathartic. And then you get out and I don't ever think about it again. It's gone. I leave it in the car. And I think understanding in the process of learning anything that they're the experiences where you actually learn a lot more than being successful. You moved to Byron Bay, which is where you met your first husband, Rhett Hutchins. What was he doing in town? Rhett was in town, and I can say this because he wrote this in his his memoir. Rhett had just come through the Buttery, which is an iconic um, drug and alcohol rehab program. He had gone there to deal with his own heroin addiction. So I'd met him when he'd just come out of the buttery. And I would meet a lot of people coming out of the buttery because there would be a transition program where people would move into the community, sometimes into your house, while they did 12-step programs for a year or so before they went back to their lives, Melbourne, Sydney, or wherever they came from. And very often these people were artists and creatives that were in that process. And so that's that's how I met Red. And I remember someone saying, oh, that guy there, he's um, Michael Hutchins' brother. And I didn't really know who Michael Hutchins was and I hadn't even been into in excess music at all because it was too, to me that was too mainstream and too straight. Like I was much more into alternative music. So I was kind of like, oh, that's embarrassing. He was, <laughs> that was a terrible thing to say, but it was true at the time. But we kind of met and we we just got on. He had a wild sense of humour. You could see, you know, he was he was a player and he was a bit of a bad boy. So I went, yeah, why not? And how long into your relationship did you fall pregnant? I fell pregnant probably about 18 months later. I, I was never a maternal person. I'd never thought about whether I was going to have children. I didn't, I didn't, I never thought about getting married. I never thought about any of that. They were not desires of mine. Before I got pregnant with um, Zoe, I'd been pregnant three times and I had three terminations, all the right choice at the time. And then I got pregnant this fourth time and I was 27. And I said to Rhett, oh, I'm pregnant. This is me because I'm such, I went, I'm pregnant. And I went, do you want to have a baby? And he goes, yeah, I would love to have a baby. And I went, am I going to have a baby in my life? And I went, yeah, I guess I might. And you're into it and you're, and you're the dad. Um, yeah, I guess we should. That That is exactly my process. Like, I'm kind of ashamed to say that was my process. We were living in a shed. Like I was living in a shed. I was literally, I had no um, 
I look at people now with their big fancy prams. I mean, we found our bassinet outside of Vinnie's and I put a synthetic coat that used to belong to my fabulous friend. It was their amazing drag queen coat. And my daughter Zoe slept in that. I lived, like I really had, I didn't have a car. I carried my groceries in my pram or on my back. I probably, for years, like... I didn't get a car till I had a second child. So I live like an absolute hippie demon. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Mandy, when you and, and Rhett were together living as hippies in a shed in Byron, Rhett's brother Michael Hutchins and his band In Excess were absolutely huge what did Michael's fame look like to you? Insane. I think Rhett was used to it, but I wasn't. And I couldn't get my, I, I couldn't get my head around, I didn't get my head around it because it was so different to anything that we had in our life. And I did the, oh, I did the worst thing. Zoe was three months old and I know Michael was with um, Paulie Yates at the time and they were coming to Australia. And we went, oh, great, we'll have a naming ceremony, which is, the hippie version of a christening. And I went, I want to do a circle. I had to be a circle because I'm a hippie. Hippie on the beach. And let's all wear white. Oh, do you making it look like some sort of weird ritualistic <laughs> thing? And I, I made up the ceremony myself um, to do with all the elements and all of that. And I asked, you know, my, and all the family and all our friends would come. And Michael and Paula, to their credit, didn't even say, look, that's not a good idea because that's highly risky. I thought we were having this beautiful moment. I had no idea that I had just set up the perfect scenario for 26 paparazzi hiding in the bushes, hiding behind bins. There were people everywhere, long lenses. Like I still kind of look back to that being chased by paparazzi, being this intense focus. I can't even imagine what, mm. what it would be like to be that person. Being near it, it's really scary, actually. It, it's actually really terrifying. And once you're in the middle of it, you can't get away. Like, like, I feel terrible that I actually did that to them. And they would have known I was setting them up for what ended up in the new idea of, I think it was Michael and Paula's hippie, hippie, like I made them look like absolute hippie. It wasn't even their idea. Like they just went along for the ride because they were such sweethearts. Were you and Rhett still together when Michael died? Yes, we were. So I think Zoe, my almost 28-year-old, was about two and a half. It's November 97. It's one of those moments you remember very clearly um, in your life because it was, it was such a big, it was such a big and shocking thing to have happen. You know, it still, it still seems even now so tragic and, and unbelievable and, you know, and painful and and unexplained. You ended up separating from Rhett and have made this truly blended family, Mandy. What's your family look like now? Well, I I did. I separated from Rhett and, you know, he was going through lots of stuff, obviously, because his brother had died and he had a whole, you know, issues that he had to deal with. And he's now living overseas, beautiful partner. He's really happy. He's He's kind of faced his demons and and really overcome them. But I'd come out of that as a going like I couldn't deal with another addiction. I was having another partner and I'd said I'd met the man who was to become my second husband and I'd been really laid the law down going like I can't handle, if you've got addiction, you've got to tell me because I can't do this again. Like I really can't. It's, you know, I've come out of it really damaged and I've got two little kids now because when Rhett and I split up, I found out the next week I was six weeks pregnant with Sophia. So then I went, I decided, so I had her on my own. Very different experience too, having that kind of 18 months of, I guess, of being a single mum before my partner, my other partner turned up, who was who was fantastic. And he didn't, hadn't had children. So it was pretty big for him to step up and, and walk into, you know, basically a broke single mum with a complex past. And I'd said this thing about the addict to him. And when you've 
traumatised like that with my whole family history, obviously, as well. You don't trust people. So I would say that, but I would be lurking behind curtains all the time. So at that time, if you were going to use drugs, you don't just ring people up. Your language is more coded. And so even as someone who was sitting on the periphery, I knew the language. And I hear this, my second husband, on the phone because I'm spying on him like a weirdo and I hear him go, oh, just g'day, you know, I'm just wondering if I can get on today. And I'm like, I come out, I'm like, what? I told you. And I just go nuts. And he's just holding the phone going, Mandy, what are you doing? I'm just on the phone to the golf course (laughs) seeing seeing if I can get on for nine holes. (laughs) And I went, that's worse. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That actually absolutely happened. And I went, and I realised, I went, wow, you've got some issues. So that was, I had a son and that relationship, we were together. We ended up getting married. We are really beautiful friends as well. You know what happens in relationships? Like, you know, we'd reached a point where things weren't working and I left. It's really hard leaving. It's really hard leaving. You know how you try and tell yourself things like, oh, the kids will be better if you leave in that situation. And I don't know. It was really hard on my kids, me leaving. And I, I'll never forget, and I know in their life, the day they look back to is, it's it's everything before then and after then. It's one of those it's those those family divorces were really hard, and I it was so painful. I was not prepared for how painful it was. Like it to see my children. It was the right decision for me, but was it the right decision for them? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. But because of that, I went. I have to really make sure that whatever happens from here, that they don't pay that they don't pay with loss of relationship, that they don't pay, that my happiness doesn't come at the cost of theirs. And so fortunately, my new partner, who I then have my daughter Ivy, who's 14 now, with, we have this big blended family and he was always really open to to navigating this. And it doesn't mean you're all going to be best friends. But it means that in those significant times in my children's lives, we can all turn up. Mm. We can all be there. We can be there at birthdays. We can share a laugh. We can we can do that. And for me, you know, I'm a fairly, um, I don't know, I'm a fairly, I've always been a fairly political person. I was a feminist that really believed in disrupting these archaic, you know, ideas about what it is to be masculine, what it is to be feminine. And if you can't disrupt the way we do relationships and do them better, then you haven't changed anything. So for me, that was really important. And it's been really beautiful. Like I love, I love being able to sit around a table with everyone on my Medicare card. (laughs) (laughs) All the different lives. (laughs) You mentioned, Maddie, that you've taught something like 2,000 people yeah. now stand-up comedy. What pushed you into starting to teach stand-up? Oh, it was someone else's idea, actually, originally, and I went, oh, this won't work. And then the first 20 people I taught, I made 20 people funny and they made them all sound, sound like me. Like, I made 20 Mandy Norlands. That was Cheapest. pretty... Yeah, because <laughs> then, then I realised what you're doing is, oh, I'm not trying to make people sound like me. No, this is how I would say this. I'm finding their voice. Like I'm finding what their experiences are and what has shaped their worldview and what's happened to them and what do you think and and what are the observations you have. And it was kind of like a light going on that don't copy me at all. I'm just one person. It's it's about your voice. And so that made teaching so exciting. Then I realised because I ran little comedy rooms in Byron Bay, you know, I would bring other acts in from Sydney and Melbourne and fly them in to feature and I'd be the MC, but you have this act called the Support Act, which is the kind of opening act. And I couldn't afford to fly people in, so I went, I'll just make them. And I found out later it's really hard. I've made a few of them. But one of them is, is Ellen Briggs, who I tour my women like I show with, who I love. Another one of them is Hannah Gadsby, who I made, but she she got very successful very quickly. What um, was she like to teach? Do she you was remember? amazing. Right oh. from the word go? Yeah, she was so funny. Hannah was exactly... Like Hannah's voice and her worldview was just so crystallised. You know, you teach people technique and you teach them some of the format. She just ran with it and went. It was there. It was just waiting for a door to open for her to step out on. Six months later, she won Raw and her life took off. I saw her at the Melbourne Comedy Festival this year. I hadn't seen her for a long time. And I was standing outside Melbourne Town Hall, you know, speaking to my kids and one of them had a girlfriend with them that went, 
oh, you know, this is my girlfriend. She's a massive Hannah Gadsby fan because the kids will go, Mum taught Hannah Gadsby. They always love saying that. And I go, yes, I did. Like, you know, look at me. <laughs> and and I said, oh, look, I don't, I, I, I haven't seen her for years. I would love to, but I just can't find a way to actually, you know, just to say hi. And I turn my head and she's standing three metres away. And we kind of see each other and have a big hug and go. And it was really nice. Hannah just goes, I absolutely remember everything you did for me in the beginning. Thank you. And I just went, oh, my God, I've been trying to contact you. She said, well, you'll never get through because she's too famous. And I just got to say how proud I was of everything that she'd done, how incredible it was. It was a really nice moment. I met her wife. We had this really nice kind of 10-minute exchange. That was all it needed to be. And I got to see, it's like, you know, you and the master, like I was far... (laughs) I was, uh, Grasshopper had overtaken me a lot. Yoda and Luke, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't very Yoda-ish though. (laughs) When you get overtaken by a student, you really hope it takes 10 years, not 10 minutes. (laughs) Like she just was stellar straight away. But maybe it could have been any other teacher in Australia. I don't think it had anything to do with me. I was just lucky to be witness to someone with such extraordinary talent and to see them do so well as a woman in the industry and a woman talking to her queerness and her diversity. It's, it's amazing. That's the kind of change I love to see because it's a great space for that. You've also taught comedy classes to senior citizens. What kind of routines do, <laughs> do they do they perform? What are their jokes about? Well, Sarah, they've had big lives. And I tell you what, once you actually teach senior citizens a bit of stand-up comedy, it's game on. <laughs> like it was, I ran this class and I called it Shooting from My Hip Replacement. And it was like, there was it was amazing. There was like... They love talking about sex and it would be stories of how disappointing their children were or <laughs> or how no one was, like, it was so outrageous and funny and off the, off the leash. I loved it. I just think comedy is such a great, because it's about voice and it's about articulating sometimes subversive storytelling in a way that's accessible and creates connection. It's a little bit dangerous but wow, when it works, it's amazing. And that was incredible. And that led you to teaching people with dementia. How did you first approach those students, Mandy? Well, that was that was an accident too. A lot of things I do by accident and I just, because I don't say no to anything. So after that shooting from my hip replacement, there was someone in a government position. You know, at the end of the year, somehow they have little pots of money that are left and they approach me and they go, look, I've got this bit of money left would you like to use it to run these comedy classes for carers of people with dementia? And I went, yeah, sure, sure. And I went, I don't know how I'm going to do that. But I'm like, yeah, I'm not saying no to a pot of money. So I roll up to this respite centre and the the carers don't want to do comedy. They just want to go home and lie down. Yeah. yeah. So I turn up and the only people there are people with dementia. And that wasn't the original brief, but I'm like, I have to do something. So I start trying to run a class with people with dementia and I do the dumbest thing where I go, Uh, tell me about this, tell me about that. Like I'm asking reflective questions which reflect back using memory and people were just, it it was not going very well and people were feeling sorry for me. By the third time, like I was just failing so badly. I was getting people to collage their feelings, like so age inappropriate. Oh, my God, Sarah, it was just, it was so painful. And I had this moment. I, I just remember it so clearly. I had my, I turned around in that feeling of desperation going, how much longer? <laughs> like, it was terrible. And and I had this little voice that came in my head. I really sound like a hippie when I say that. But it just said to me, it went, all they have is the moment, Mandy. Give them the moment. So I swung around and I go, Neville, I hear you're an amazing dancer. Can you show me? Can you show me those moves that you've got with Judy? And he stood up, took her by the hand, and then they started to move. And then I realised the secret was I had to give them a context to step forward. Like we would just wet ourselves every week. And I couldn't believe it because the sense of humour, like we, so I would start bringing props, like just, I I figured if you gave someone a stethoscope, a police hat, a, a cup of tea, a teapot, like one thing, it was a prompt, a visual prompt to help them. So I would kind of initiate the idea and get them going. And these little improvisations, they would start off as 30 seconds and they'd run out of steam. By the end, when we did our performance for the carers and their and their support workers, they would be up to 10 minutes each. And so funny, Sarah, like we, we did lots and lots and lots of them over a number of years. It was 
it was some of the most beautiful, gorgeous work that I think I've ever done. Like, um, then the government just stopped funding it, so I couldn't do it anymore. Tell me about a woman you you worked with called Bess, who hadn't spoken for a long time. Oh, that was really beautiful. Whilst I was doing this, there was a research team following the classes, doing some work, and the interviewer says, oh, the research talks about how um, Bess had been mute and um, she started speaking. And I went, well, that's not true. I don't know where you got that from. That's ridiculous. And I went back and I was furious going, why would she be making these stories up? And they go, no, she was mute for two years, this one particular person. And I didn't know. When I, and I, Because one, one of the things I have when I work with people, I'd go, don't tell me any, I don't want to know about who they were in their life, what their limitations are. If I'm sensitive enough, I'll be able to work it out. And I don't want to limit people by having limiting ideas about what they can and can't do. And one thing I didn't know was this one particular woman had didn't, didn't speak. Had I known she didn't speak, I would never have put her in a situation that made her uncomfortable. But I didn't know, so I did. And she was the chattiest person in the class because her daughter came along to see it and nearly fell off the chair. And her mum is wearing like an Arabian princess outfit and I put two men beside her and I go, Beth, two of these men are your suitors. Which will you keep? And she goes, well... I'll keep both of them and <laughs> and I'll keep whichever one lasts the longest. <laughs> that was what her voice was like. It's beautiful. Anyway, she was she was funny and w- she was wickedly funny. Like she was wicked. And I don't know what happened after that. Did she speak outside of class or only? I in don't that know. Space? She spoke in that space. Like I saw her. It's very hard when you get dementia. Particularly, a lot of these people had moderate to quite advanced dementia, and it, it's very hard to have engaging conversations with other people. So that's why when we did this kind of play, it started to create these really fun, sensitive relationships between. So people would would practice compassion with each other and, and outrage and jealousy and it kind of put people in these these mini little... So when we sat down, you'd start off the day at morning tea, no one speaking, and after we'd run this 90-minute session, people would sit around having their lunch, still laughing and then being much more competent at having those kind of casual social relationships. It was really beautiful. Like, I mean, look, comedy isn't a cure for dementia, but wow, it's still, it still feels amazing to laugh and connect with other people. You've um, said a lot of the things that happened in your life so far have been down to accidents, you know, starting stand-up comedy or then teaching. Getting pregnant. Getting pregnant. <laughs> What about the decision to enter politics? Was that an accident too? Yeah, well, kind of. Um, I got approached by by the Greens um, because where I live, it's the Elector of Richmond, which runs from Tweed to Ballina, and it's identified by the Greens as one, one of their winnable, potentially winnable seats, and it will be their first federal regional seat. So you need to have, to run in that seat, you needed to have a... Um, public profile or to have a strong sense of connection. So I'd been, you know, I had been there. I, I write an, a strong opinion piece in the local paper. I've fronted up rallies against inappropriate development. I've fought for forests. I've done that many nude-ins. Nude-ins? We do a lot of protesting in the nude, Sarah. Northern rivers, bless I you. I know. Just I was thinking the other day, like, <laughs> even when you don't need to protest in the nude, you'll be at a meeting and someone goes, should we do it in the nude? And you go, oh, let's do it in the nude. Like, I have done so many. Anyway, so the Greens asked me, I go, oh, no. I remember saying maybe next time because I'm like, my mama's career was going pretty well. I'm pretty happy. And they came back and they go, well, there may not be a next time. And I was like, oh, my God, climate change activists are so passive aggressive. So then I went back doing what I usually do and I was, I was at a function, maybe six months later, and I was talking like I do in an advocacy space and I've been, I've been working in the space of actually talking about housing in our region for quite some time. Having come out of someone that lived in a shed as a single mum who'd rented, I'm, you know, I know the story, and I'm banging on about it and someone in the audience just goes, why do you keep, doing this. Why don't you actually do something about it, Mandy? Why don't you go into politics? Because, you know, we've been listening to you for over 20 years. And then I got this, I kind of got called out by the community. for not. So I, I had to ring the Greens back and go, oh, I'll do, I'll, yes. <laughs> and then that was it. It felt right. It was terrifying. I, I was never more terrified of anything in my life. than More terrifying than stand-up? Oh, so much more terrifying than stand-up. Because I guess that there's this, still this idea that if you enter politics, you've got to have a very carefully presented image and you've got to have your backstory 
kind of all oh, it's shiny so and polished. How does that fit with you? Yeah, not very well. That's not me at all. And I, I can't be, it's inauthentic to be that person. People in the political frame have never, I never look at them and and go, I relate to you as someone, as one of my tribe. Like I'm I'm, I'm messy, I'm a bit chaotic. You'll Google me and find pictures of me, obviously. I swear I've had lots of broken relationships. A lot of them are in books that I've written. Everything that's wrong with me, I have mined for material. <laughs> so I'm what you call a very big target when it comes to it comes to politics. And that's part of something that I'd like to see change because it, to bring the humanity back into politics, to bring compassion and understanding, you've really got to have an understanding of the lives that people have led and the choices that they've made, that we shouldn't expect our politicians to be two-dimensional because then they'll make two-dimensional choices. Like, I, I think round, rich human beings, to me, hopefully will always be better for their communities. How did people react when you knocked on their door <laughs> during the campaign trail? Uh, they'd go, Mandy Nolan, what are you doing here? And then they'd go, um... Dan, Mandy Nolan's at the door. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I love door knocking. I absolutely love it. I love it. I didn't think I was gonna love it. It's it's a powerful thing. Like you're basically going to someone's door and asking them what they care about and listening to them. It's so people actually want to tell you. I did get a Jehovah Witness who didn't want me to be there, but, which was pretty funny. That was really ironic. Because he's really good at door knocking, obviously. And he goes, I'm a Jehovah Witness, I don't vote. And he goes to close the door and I put my foot in the door and I went, no way you got to tell me a bit more. I said, I've got my pamphlet here about the end of the world, my climate change end of the world. It's got more science in it than yours. Come on, let's tell me. And then he, he told me he couldn't vote because he could only vote for um, God in God's kingdom. And then I got to say, well, I hate to tell you this, God's not running. We did have a laugh, though. That was actually quite a funny, um, that was a cute little moment that we had together. But I love the listening. That's what good politics is, though. You, like, you actually go and it's, and it takes takes a lot of effort. We had over a 1,000 volunteers doing that for 14 months. And, of course, in the lead-up to last year's election, your community went through the, the devastating floods of, of February and March. What did that mean for, for you and the people in your team? My campaign manager lost everything. She was a single mum with two little kids. It, it was oh, beyond traumatising. 14 metres of water went through Lismore, like... People lost everything. Some people lost their lives. You know, I don't know how more people didn't die. When, the places I've been into where there's been massive landslides, people are still repatriating their lives too. There are still people living in caravans, you know, wondering what, what happens next. We did a lot of volunteering. The community, what, what you actually saw, the, the hope, you know, you kind of, it's like hope and despair. If you ever questioned uh, community's capacity to to create powerful grassroots action with very little communication. We lost all our communications in a lot of areas. Suddenly people are organising helicopters to drop medication up into the hills. They had to drop Starlinks so they could actually have some communication. The way that we kind of organised teams to go out and go door to... This wasn't government. This weren't agencies. This was community being incredibly agile. Kids and, and people, like, just getting out there, mopping out people's houses because it doesn't matter who you are when it comes to that. You're all the same. There must have been so much adrenaline and exhaustion by the time election day actually dawns. What, what was it feeling like for you? It feels like a weird wedding day. It does. It feels like a, it's just so bizarre. Like the adrenaline is unbelievable and, and your sense of there is nothing that you haven't given. Like you, when you have given everything you have. And nobody ever talks about, nobody who campaigns ever talks about the emotional complexity of what it is to go out to your community and, and ask them to come behind you. And when you lose, it's so hard. Like when you are actually, you're pulling that belief with you and this incredible momentum for change and it's beautiful and amazing. And when you don't quite get there, it's just the crash is, it's, it's huge. A bit like that boy back at Kingaroy. I oh, know. You cannot love me. In the it's way I like you that. to love me. It took me a week to realise. I couldn't believe it was exactly like that, Sarah. I was like, oh, my God. And you're really aware when you're doing it is what you're carrying forward of 
people's belief, the hundreds of hours that they've given and and the hopes. It was unlike anything I'd ever done before. I was like the pointy end of an arrow, basically. It, it did take me um, a while to to kind of recover. I literally couldn't get out of bed for a couple of days. I, I couldn't. I could barely move. I was so exhausted and so emotionally wrung out. It's really hard. And then when you do concede, you've got to ring up the person who won and congratulate them. You feel like a child and you just want to go, Ugh. just want to say, <laughs> whatever, like congratulations. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Like very humbling. I learned, I learned a lot. What do you think the little girl from Wondai would make of the woman that you've become? Oh, I would like to think that 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 little girl would would feel would feel that was exactly what she was hoping she would grow into. That she would see someone who's comfortable with herself, who who doesn't hide from her her story, who has a big, warm, open lap that you can just climb up onto. Um, I started in a small community that came around me. I live in a community that is around me and it's not it's never about you. It's always about it's about your community. So this beautiful story of of women who were in central Australia, Aboriginal women who were singing in a choir and they had to take them aside and sing their parts separately. And every time a woman had to record her part separately, she started laughing hysterically in the studio. Of course, she'd never heard her voice alone. Her voice was always in that group of other women that she sung with. And I went, that's such a phenomenally beautiful message of only ever knowing who you are and how you sound in the presence of your community, not alone. And I'm very much like that. Like, that's who I am. That's how I feel about my small community. Mandy, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Thanks for asking such lovely questions. Mandy Nolan was my guest on Conversations. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.